0: Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit seekingtruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today is part one of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter nine, and now Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, welcome to our discussion of Romans chapter 9. The title tonight is You Are God's Treasured Clay. That means each and every one of us is a special creation made by God the potter, each with a different design, each unique, each a different purpose, but all together for the glory of God. Even this clay pigeon has a different purpose. I used to be a a trap girl. I used to uh, the guys would come to shoot blue rocks and they're made out of clay. They're called clay pigeons or blue rocks and their whole purpose is to be shattered. You are God's treasured clay. Sirach, 38 says, so too is the potter sitting at the work and turning the will with his feet. He is always deeply concerned over his work and all his output is by number. God knows you by number. Each of us are numbered by the potter. Each of us is counted and thoroughly known. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, he said, even the hairs on your head are numbered. Let's just say God the potter knows his inventory. Isaiah 49 says, Behold, I have graven you on the palm of my hands. You were each created for a definite purpose. You are God's treasured clay. Your intended purpose ultimately is what? We are created in order to temporarily house the Trinity. Our clay vessels, Paul tells the Corinthians at 2 Corinthians 4, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that the transcendent power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies, in our earthen vessels. We hold quite a treasure, the Trinity, the sanctifying grace of our baptism as Catholics. We hold the Trinity in our earthen vessels. Baptized Christians contain God within them. Now, suffering can sometimes help others see the light of the Trinity alive in us, inside of us. So if you're suffering, if you have a crack or a broken area in your life, sometimes that's where the Trinity radiates out of and others see Christ alive in you. Paul told us last week in Romans 8, when we cry, Abba, Father, it's the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided what? Provided we suffer. We suffer with him in order that we too may be glorified with him. And I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. When Jesus gives us the great privilege of suffering with him, the Trinity can shine out of our broken vessel and it can be redemptive for healing the life of the world. The light of Christ can shine through our brokenness for the life of the world, the river of life, the Holy Spirit spirit can seep through our cracks so Powerful that he shares it three times in sacred scripture is Paul's testimony. You know, the more cracks, the more brokenness, the better your story because Christ's redemption is even more visible, more powerful in your story. There's a great paradox of the cross of Jesus Christ, a paradox. It doesn't often make sense. It says in Paul today, Romans 9, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make men stumble, a rock that will make them fall. And he who believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, through our life, our clay pots, we get a little damaged, right? We get a little chipped up or a little rough around the edges because we live in a fallen, disordered world. And Paul tells us in Romans 7, we are constantly in a battle with concupiscence. We're cracked pots. We're not perfect. We live in a broken world. We fall. We stumble. We get cracked pots but god the master potter repairs us in time with prayer and grace from the healing sacraments of his bride his mystical body the church and jesus is the divine physician he feeds us the medicine of immortality and the holy spirit comforts us with the soothing balm in reconciliation with god natural clay is red earth mixed with water right and the first clay vessel that God created was Adam. Adamah in in Hebrew, Adamah the reddish earth. From the earth God made Adam. Streams, remember from Genesis 2, streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground, and then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and out of the clay earth mixed with water from the streams that covered the face of the earth. God the master potter created Adam from clay and water. Just like we studied in John chapter 9, when Jesus spit on the ground, on the clay and made mud with his own saliva and put the mud on the man's eyes and told him to go to, to that he sent, he sent him to Salome, and he washed there and came home seeing a new creation. God the master potter created Adam from clay and water. God formed Adam. Some translations say God fashioned Adam, or God created him. The Lord God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, eternal life, and man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. So God was the potter who crafted Adam from the clay earth. Because of Adam's fall from grace, remember that clay earth became cursed. God never cursed Adam, but he cursed the earth. And we are crafted from that cursed clay. So we are born with the curse of Adam's original sin. But at baptism, the Holy Spirit, who is the river of life, who flowed from the tree of life in the middle of the garden, recreates us. And we're very moldable clay in this new little vessel as an infant. We are reformed. We are refashioned by the river of life. And if we stay soft clay, God the Trinity, the potter, can continue to mold and shape and fashion our vessels, helping us learn to to navigate concupiscence and to live according to the Holy Spirit who indwells us instead of living by the sinful flesh nature that we are so prone to do. As long as our clay stays soft, there's much hope of being molded and even remolded and refashioned again and again over years in moments of deeper and deeper conversion. But if our heart hardens towards God, then our vessels are in danger of becoming quite fractured. Hardened clay can shatter easily into a million pieces under pressure. And Paul reminded us of that today when God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You remember when the wall of water broke and came over Pharaoh and his chariots and his entire army was left at the bottom of the Red Sea. A lot of hardened hearts lay at the bottom of the Red Sea. Hardened clay can easily shatter. Romans 9, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you so that that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy upon whomever he wills, and he hardens the heart of whomever he wills. The master potter. God. Wisdom 15. For when a potter kneads the soft earth and laboriously molds each vessel for service, he fashions out the same clay, both the vessels that serve clean uses and the vessels for contrary uses, like all in like manner. But Which shall be the use of each of these? The worker in clay decides. God decides what he creates. Isaiah 29, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Sirach 33, as clay in the hand of the potter, for all his ways are as he pleases. So men are in the hand of him who made them and give them as he decides. God is the potter. We are the clay. Whoa, Isaiah 45. Woe to him who strives with his maker an earthen vessel with the potter. Does the clay say to him who fashions it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. The potter decides his creation. You are God's treasured clay, and he has a plan for you. Will you stay soft and pliable in conforming your own free will, sometimes our strong will, to the potter's will? Sirach 27.5, the kiln tests the potter's vessels. So clay pots have to be fired. And the fire of the kiln is at least 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit, maybe higher, depending on what you're making, Cracking, cranking up that in tense heat of the fire is crucial for pottery making. The clay and the glazes are brought up to a high temperature. The final aim is to heat the object to the point that the glaze and the glazes are mature, that they have reached their optimal potential. Just like in the spiritual life, when the heat gets turned up, we're purified, all the other stuff goes away. we're, we're, We're in the fire to the point that we mature, that we grow in our spiritual life. The kiln test, the potter's vessels. He molds the clay with his arm. He makes it pliable with his feet. He sets his heart to finish the glazing, and he is careful to clean the furnace. Yet, O Lord, Isaiah 64, thou art the father, we are the clay, you are the potter, and we are all the work of thy hand. So you are God's treasured clay. Now, in Romans 9 today, we're talking about God's election of Israel. I'm speaking the truth in Christ, says Paul. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. It's an interesting, convincing way that Paul starts this chapter. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. In my conscience bears the witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, my race. I wish I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. Can you believe Paul is saying this for the sake of his brothers, his kinsmen, his fellow Jews by race? Just last week, he told us there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And he said that there was nothing that could separate us from God's love, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor present things, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth. Nothing, nothing could separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And now he's saying, I wish myself that I could was accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my fellow Jews. Paul, my friends, is sounding a lot like Moses here. Paul talks about Moses eight times in his letters. Four times in Romans, Moses was willing to intercede on behalf of the sinful Israelites. He was willing to lay down his own life. He said, Lord, blot me out. This was right after the fallen calf incident in Genesis 32. You remember, Moses begged in Exodus. Moses begged. It's it's Exodus 32, excuse me. Moses begged the Lord on behalf of the sinful Israelites in the next chapter, Exodus 33. He begged the Lord. He begged the Lord. And the Lord said, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. He's the potter, right? But he said, you can't see my face anymore, Moses. If we go on, if, if I stay with you, then you can't see my face anymore because now no man will see me and live. And so Moses gave that up on behalf of the Israelites. He had to hide in the cleft. He could no longer see God. Now, Moses and Paul are pictured together sometimes. And why does Paul want to be like Moses? In Romans, Moses always stands for the law, the law of Moses, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. In fact, nearly every time Paul mentions the law in this letter and in the Galatians, he means the law of Moses. And Paul taught the law of Moses. He was taught it by himself, by Gamaliel, the greatest teacher of the time, the greatest teacher of the law. It's in Acts chapter 5. And then in Acts 22, Paul says, I'm a Jew I studied under Gamaliel. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. He's very zealous for the law. He loves the law of Moses. Moses is his hero. Paul wants to be a new Moses. But by wanting to be a new Moses, Paul really wanted to be like Jesus, right? Because Jesus was the new Moses, higher than Moses in the transfiguration. And in the epistle to the Philippians, while Paul was in prison, he wrote do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but out of humility. Moses had been the humblest man on the face of the earth until Jesus Christ came. Count others better than yourselves. Let each of you look out not for your own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who through, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But Jesus emptied himself, took the form of a slave, was born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He he humbled himself even more, became obedient to death, even to death on a cross. So the new Moses, Jesus, would give up 33 years of glory time with the Father in heaven to intercede on behalf of all fallen, all sinful humans for all time. So Paul identifies now not only with Moses, but with the new Moses, Jesus Christ. He says, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anger anguish in my heart, for I wish I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren. Does he mean that? He wants to intercede the way Moses did, the way Jesus did. He has such a zeal for souls, especially those of his own brothers in the old covenant, the Jews. He's deeply anguished. And I ask you, have you ever had deep anguish in your own life, for some of your own brethren, some of your own family members, perhaps. Maybe you've anguished over your kids or your spouse. Great, deep anguish, deep anguish for their soul. Anguish, I looked it up, it means severe mental or physical pain or suffering. As a verb, it means to be extremely distressed about something. Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Have you ever thought that for my kid? I'd do anything, Lord. I, 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 I'd give my faith for theirs. Uh, some people say we gave them everything. We gave them Catholic school, K-12, through youth groups, retreats. I, we'd send them through Catholic college, made great sacrifices. we have zeal for the soul of family members. That's what Paul's talking about here. He says they had everything. They're Israelites, and to them belong the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, our great patriarchs, and of their race. I love these old icons, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the children, that they are progenerative of the race. According to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed be God forever. Amen. They had it all. God had revealed himself to them first out of all the people in the entire world. Remember the divine speech from the top of Mount Sinai in 70 languages it could be heard. God showed him his great fire. They heard his words from the midst of the fire and God split his voice into 70. All the nations could hear and only Israel. Before they even heard the law, they consented to it. All that the Lord has said we will do. Paul is reminding them of The scriptures, and this would only be the Old Testament scriptures. That's all they had. The patriarchs, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Isaiah, David, Melchizedek. Everything now is going to center around the Eucharistic Christ because Christ is gone. He's ascended back to the Father. Paul says to the Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when it had been given thanks, he took it, he broke it, he said, This is Is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In this old icon, you see Melchizedek right in the center with the bread and wine. The same way he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So all the patriarchs belong to Israel. Paul is making all the connections in his mind. Paul is revealing Christ in the Old Testaments, the hidden Christ, the hidden Messiah. After Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, Paul had scales over his eyes. But when Paul was baptized by Ananias, and I always chuckle, it's on the street called Straight, Paul straightens out his life. He's baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit by Ananias, and scales literally fall from his eyes. And Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit and infused with all the Spirit's gifts, wisdom, understanding, knowledge. And Paul's conversion afterwards, he pours over the Old Testament scriptures with this new Holy Spirit understanding and the insights of the risen Christ as the true anointed one that God had promised. And scales fall from his eyes. The veil has been lifted from his face and he understands. He sees all the hiddenness of the Old Testament. And Paul says today, It's not as though the word of God, and he's talking about the Old Testament, it's not as though the word of God had failed. God told us about Jesus. It was all there all along. It was hidden. And now he sees it with the Holy Spirit eyes. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his descendants. But through Isaac, through Isaac shall your descendants be named. Now, Abraham and Sarah, we studied last year in Genesis, not all are children of Abraham because they are his descendants, but through Isaac shall your descendants be named. Paul understands the promised blessing of redemption from the fall, from the cursed earth, will come through Isaac the promise. Not everyone who is being saved through baptism was in the direct genetic line of Abraham, but they're in the line of the promise. Salvation was coming through a promise from God, not through heredity. In Romans 9, Paul says this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise are reckoned as his descendants. For this is what the promise said about this time. I will return and Sarah, will have a son. I love this icon, what Sarah is holding, the scripture, the scroll. Sarah said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would suckle children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. It's a supernatural conception. It's a supernatural pregnancy. It's a supernatural promise that God is fulfilling. And we see at the Oaks of Mamre, the sun is promised to Abraham and Sarah. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the Oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of the tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes. He looked and behold three men stood in front of him. The Lord. And when he saw them, he ran to the tent door to meet them and he bowed himself to the earth and he said, "My Lord, if I have found favor in your Sight, do not pass your servant by. And Abraham hastened into the tent of Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal and knead it into bread. Three measures of dough from Sarah's tent. They, and as plural, they the Trinity, the three men, the Lord, they said, where's your wife, Sarah? And Abraham said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you in the spring and Sarah, your wife shall have a son. That's the son of promise. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind and Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner. Of woman. Sarah is done with menopause. Sarah laughs to herself and says, after I've grown old and my husband's old, and now I shall have this pleasure. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you in the spring and Sarah shall have a son. This is the son of promise. This is Isaac. Sarah denied saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. This fear and awesomeness of the Lord came over her. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Now this time, Sarah has heard the Lord with her own ears. This isn't just Abraham telling her about a prayer time. You know, Abraham's not just making something up about his incredible prayer times. Sarah heard the Lord with her own ears. And Paul uses this analogy to the Galatians at chapter 4. Tell me, who... You who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it was written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave, the other by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, the son of the free woman through promise. So flesh and spirit, we had that battle last week. Well, Paul is saying that the slave woman, Hagar, you know her, had a son, Ishmael, the son of the slave woman was by the flesh. But the free woman, Sarah, And the son of the free woman, Isaac, were born by the Spirit, by a promise from God the Trinity. I promise to send my Spirit to uncurse the clay earth and live inside of you. That same Holy Spirit. Now, this is an analogy. These two women are covenants, Paul says. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. She is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem, she is our mother. Sarah, for it is written, rejoice, O barren one that does not bear. Break forth and shout, thou who art in travail. For the desolate hath more children than she who hath a husband. Now we, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise, says Paul in Galatians 4. At that time, he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, remember he used to taunt Isaac, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the spirit. So it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brethren, we are not children of the slave, but we are of the freeborn woman. Ishmael was Abram's first son, born of the flesh through a slave woman from Egypt named Hagar. It is undeniable that Ishmael was the firstborn son of Abraham. It was Abraham's seed that impregnated the Egyptian slave Hagar at Sarah's suggestion. But the inheritance of God's promise for redemption was not coming through that genetic bloodline of Hagar and Ishmael. God's election was Sarah. And Isaac, the son of promise. In Genesis 17 of Sarah, God said to Abraham, Your wife Sarai, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you another son by her, and I will bless her. So she shall be the mother of nations, kings, and peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and he laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said, Said to God, oh, 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 that Ishmael might just live in your sight. Here's Ishmael, he's 13, we're doing fine, I got a son. Could it just be through him? Both women have the seed of Abraham, both women will have descendants of Abraham, but only one woman will have the child of promise, the election of God by the clay pot of Sarah and her womb, that one woman, that old barren womb, Sarah. And the promise is through her son, her supernaturally conceived son of promise named Isaac. So old Sarah, wife of Abraham, should have never conceived. And young Mary, also a daughter of Abraham, should have never conceived. She's a virgin. She's old and barren. Both women though are connected to Abraham and they both carry a supernatural son of promise, Isaac and the new Isaac, a typology again for Jesus Christ, the anti-type always being greater than the type. Jesus is a new Isaac, the son of promise, God's ultimate promise. God's promise came true. Ishmael became a great nation as God said he would. This exile of Hagar and Ishmael resulted in Hagar and Abraham's son Ishmael fathering a great nation from whom which Muhammad would descend. Both sons are direct descendants of Abraham's seed, but only one son is the son of promise for all fallen humanity. Look at the mother. One is free and one is a slave. God's promise comes through Sarah and God's promise comes through Isaac. They are the elected ones as Paul is telling us today. Romans 9, but if it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all are children of Abraham because they are his descendants, but though through Isaac shall your descendants be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise who are reckoned as descendants. For this is what the promise said about this time. I will return and Sarah will have a son. The son of promise was not Ishmael which means God will hear. St. Paul would call Ishmael a son of the flesh, of the slave woman. But the son of promise, which means laughter, joy, will be Isaac. Look at Isaac in that painting with the lamb, the lamb of God. That's a typology. Isaac, little Isaac, son of promise, awaiting the lamb of God, God's ultimate blessing and promise. That was part one of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter nine, on Seeking Truth, with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.